Well, let me pray. Well, Father, we ask, please, now that uh, you might work through your word by your Holy Spirit uh, and stir us to see these uh, rich truths, the greatness of what you have done for us in Christ, that, Lord, we might, um, we might come to have faith in him and might live all our days trusting in him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the great things uh, that makes the Christian message glorious, great and good is right here in this passage. I say one of because there are many things that make the Christian message great, good and glorious. We saw some of that last week, we saw it the week before, we've seen it most weeks. Last week, you might remember, we looked at um, Ephesians chapter 1 and the, uh, the greatness, glory and goodness of uh, what God has done in creating a universe for His Son, the Lord Jesus, that everything will be summed up in Him, all things are made for Him. Uh, there is a, a great purpose that you have in your life to live for Him. And is an extraordinary claim about that person, Jesus, to just reflect again that what's being said in the Bible is that that man, the man Jesus, who walked the streets of Palestine, Israel, Jerusalem, however you language it, but that Middle Eastern area, that man who walked those streets 2,000 years ago is the reason for your existence. You were made for Him. The whole universe was made for Him. Now, there's no other religion that's made a claim like that. It is the most remarkable, astonishing claim on the planet. Um, do you know, when I, um, when I considered the Christian faith many years ago, so I wasn't raised in a church home, I was raised in a church sending home. My parents sent me to Sunday school, but after a short time I realised it was much better at home with them. But anyway, I left Sunday school. And, um, I, but when, as a young adult, I came back to consider the whole question of, you know, the big questions of life, why are we here, what's the purpose, is there a God, how might I relate to him? I knew that religions were seeking to answer that question, so I kind of began to search through the religious thing. Um, and I, I realised very early on that I only really needed to search one. If I dug into Christianity and the Christian claim, given how unique, astonishing, huge the claim of Jesus is, that if I found that it was true, my search was over. Because if he is who he says he is, then there is no other option. Uh, there is no other religion. And uh, as you can see from me standing here, I came, became convinced he is who he says he is. But no other religious leader has said what the Bible says about Jesus. No other religious leader has said what Jesus said. Now today, what we're looking at is the ex extraordinary claim about the work of Jesus. So last week, in a sense, was a look at who he is and what the purpose of life is, in a sense. Today, the claim is particularly about the work of Jesus. And I want to suggest to you this morning that the claim about the work of Jesus is likewise as vast, as all-encompassing, as unique uh, in comparison to any other religion. It stands alone, stands apart. And it's summed up, if you've got your Bibles, turn to chapter 10. We won't have it on the screen this morning. We're going to go back to you having a Bible and looking at the Bible. Have, have a look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. Come down to those words there. Run, cast your eye down through the verse. By that will we've been made holy through the sacrifice of the one body of Jesus Christ. Now look at those last three words. Once for all. Once for all. It's that little phrase that actually is the translation of one Greek word. It's, it's that little phrase that sums up the uniqueness and the power and greatness and glory and goodness of the work of Jesus. What he did was once for all. And I want to show you this morning uh, 
what that just means and how no one else has said it or claimed it and actually compare it somewhat to other religious claims to uh, drive home the point. So let's look at the passage, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, I'm just going to go from verse 1 down to about, um, well to the end of the chapter actually but very briefly, or not the end of the chapter, down to verse 16 but let me go through it with you, look at the first verse, we'll start there, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. So what he's talking about here is a system of sacrifices, that'll be the context, a system of religiosity that's built into the whole Jewish world of temple, priest and sacrifice that was uh, required by the law of God to to enact, the building of a temple in a certain shape, the appointment of priests to offer sacrifices and the whole law around animals being killed ceremonially, how they'd be killed, how many and how often and so on. Um, But consider what it's saying about that whole system established by the law. It's saying, if you go through the first four four verses, how would you summarise what it's saying about that whole system of sacrifice? Give us your thoughts, actually. You're alert. Give me your thoughts. What's it saying? In summary, what's it saying about that whole system of sacrifice? It's incomplete. It's inadequate. It didn't work. That's a good set of answers. Incomplete, inadequate, it didn't work. How can the blood of bulls and goats, verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Uh, Verse 1 there, um, for this reason it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Now he gives you a reason why, it's evident that it can't work or didn't work. Verse 2, they had to keep being offered. Why, why would they have not stopped being offered? For the worshipper would have been cleansed once for all and they could have gone home without any guilt anymore if they worked. But instead, they had to keep being done. Repeat it again and again and again. Uh, you know, like you try and fix a leaking tap or a leaking, a leaking pipe and stick duct tape over it. You'll have to keep replacing the tape again and again and again. It's, because it's not fixing it. You've got rust in the car, you cut the rust out and paint over it, you'll have to do it again in 12 months' time because it's not fixed. And this repetition of sacrifice again and again demonstrates that it wasn't fixing the problem of sin. It was inadequate. It didn't work. And in fact, he says there in verse 1, it was only a shadow of the good things that are coming not the realities themselves. He's making an astonishing claim about that whole sacrificial system. The temple, the priest, were just a shadow of something coming. Now, what does a shadow say? It's a very simple little thing, but just bear with me while I explain it to you. You're standing around a corner and the sun is shining and you see a shadow coming. You can't see the person who's cast the shadow, but you can see what the shadow tells you is that someone's coming. It gives you a sense of the shape, but the shadow is not the person, not the reality. It just tells you the reality is on its way. And that's what this claim is about the whole sacrifice, the bulls and goats, the blood, the sacrifice, the priest, the temple. It was all just a shadow, anticipating something more that was coming. You see, he says two things, actually, I might offer here. That, that, um, three things. These, these sacrifices didn't work. They were anticipating something to come. And they're a constant reminder, he says, of sin, verse 3. Those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sin. Now, I want to go through each of those, but just very quickly, it is worth us pausing for a moment on them being a reminder of sin. Because 
For the Jewish people, they had a very strong sense of sin. It was a reminder annually of it. For us, the sacrificial system is, in a sense, a lesson that there is a sinful problem. There is a problem of sin. You see, sin is a shorthand kind of little word for that whole shape of humankind where we were made to live a certain way to please God and serve one another but fail. We fall short of it and we do it rebelliously with pride. We are far less than what we're intended to be. Now this system, this sacrificial system, wasn't just set up to remind us of the problems on the horizontal but remind us of the problems to teach us the problem vertically. That that problem of sin in the human heart actually has a consequence spiritually. It has a consequence before God. Uh, And it says this, let me just explain this to you. At the centre of Jewish life, the law provided for the temple. Now, the temple was uh, a massive structure, as big as this block of land, effectively. Uh, But let me just use this building as a bit of a picture of it. Um, The the temple was designed in a very uh, specific way with a series of concentric buildings narrowing down to a very... Um, small inner place called the the, the um, Holy of Holies, and if I could just compare it to this, it's like there was a part of the temple that was the foyer, a part of the temple that was the main body of the temple, and then there's the curtain, and behind the curtain is the Holy of Holies, and the way God sort of explained it was, that's where I'm going to dwell. Now I'm the God that's infinite and dwells everywhere. I'm omnipresent, but I'm going to particularly make my name to dwell there. Because I want to teach you something. I want to teach you that you don't just waltz into the presence of God. I want to teach you that God wants to be with you, but he wants to be with you in a way that bears in mind the problem of sin such that you can't just be behind the curtain with me. So everyone can come into the foyer, but only a certain group of people can come into the main body close to the the curtain. And, 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 you know, that's the Jewish nation, those who have become chosen and so on. But then he says... And he says this in chapter 9, verse 7, actually. But only the high priest, only one member of that community, can go in behind the curtain into that inner room. And only once a year, verse 7 of chapter 9. And never without blood, which he offered for himself and the sins of the people that they'd committed in ignorance. So what he's saying in all of this is that the Holy Spirit was showing that the way into the very presence of God was not just for everybody. And it couldn't happen without sacrifice. And in fact, you get this on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter 16, that they would have a a, a series of very um, um, richly uh, sort of thought through sacrificial processes. There'd be an animal where the high priest would lay his hands on the head of the animal. And in that context, effectively what was being said was that the sins of the people are transferred into the animal. So that the guilt and sin now resides in the animal. And then that animal is killed. And the, the, the shedding of the blood of that animal signifies that God has dealt with in some fashion the sin of the high priest, the sin of the nation, so that sinner but that you are, you could possibly come for a moment into the presence of God. Because when sin is found on an animal, it kills that animal. And God says, I want you in presence with me. But the only way that can happen is if your sin gets killed in another animal. I substitute someone in your place. And this whole thing was, it happened year after year after year. 
You don't just stroll into the presence of God, you need blood to be shed because sin is so serious. But it had to keep being done. It had to be repeated again, again. Uh, The whole thing wasn't designed for the sentimental. It wasn't designed for the naive. It wasn't designed for the romantic. It wasn't designed for the soft-hearted. It was designed to bring a hard-headed truth to bear. That sin is so serious, someone needs to die. Now imagine if the temple were functioning today. Can you imagine the outcry? There'd be a number of reasons why people would be outraged by the slaughter of animals every Sunday or Saturday. Uh, Just the fact that how dare we kill animals. But I dare say many people in our day and age would be horrified at the death of animals because what a bizarre notion they would say. That God hates sin so much someone has to die. Not the God that I believe in. The God that I believe in is a God of love. He will accept everybody no matter what. Now here's the thing to wrestle with. Is the God who is actually there, does he fit himself to what you want him to be like or is he he in himself as he is, whatever you think of him? That's the thing to wrestle with. Is, is God who he is irrespective of what we think or is he shaped by what I think? You might not like to think of God as this kind of God, but that's not the question to wrestle with. The question to wrestle with is, what is he actually like? What is he actually like? I've said this often over the years, I think there's a massive separation in humankind and it'll be amongst us this morning. There's there's a, a division that exists between humans. And it's not the division of race or age or class. It's the division about how you think about sin. Do you think that humans are basically good and God is a God that will accept everybody no matter what, everything's okay? Or do you think that humans are basically sinful and the holy God cannot receive a sinner into his presence without their being destroyed? There is the great division that exists between humankind and it'll be amongst us this morning. There'll be some who are convinced the problem of sin is not that big a problem. It's just a primitive, old way of thinking that we've grown out of. Now, you might be sitting there going, yeah, that's me, that's me. But others will be very conscious of sin in their life, sin in their heart. They'll, they'll be living with a sense of terror that to stand before the holy God with it all laid bare, I will not survive. Many of you have that very great sense. Now, I won't be able to this morning convince you of who's right or wrong but what I do want you to do is just recognize that that's the big difference amongst us in our world and if the Bible's right and you live as if God will just accept anyone we're all okay nothing's the big problem if you live as if like that is the way and the Bible ends up being right the consequences are devastating This is not a trivial issue. This is something to wrestle seriously with. And just to recognise that the vast majority of humans down through all of human history until the last bunch of years have agreed with the Bible that there's a problem of sin. Somehow we've convinced ourselves in this kind of romantic naivety world that we live in that everything will be alright. But then you see Hamas... 
and retribution and terrorist organisations. And you wonder, how can that be? And I tell you, it can be because you've all got it. We're all sinners. The reality keeps speaking against naive romanticism. You know, the lesson of this system God gave the ancient people was to teach them, to remind them that there was this thing called sin in the human heart and that before a holy God, the problem of sin was vast and great. You could not just waltz into his presence without death happening again and again and again. But it was also this whole system set up to anticipate something to come. Look then at verse 1 again with me. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. He then convinces that the reason we know that they're not the good things because they couldn't actually do the job, they, couldn't, they wouldn't achieve the thing, but they're anticipating something good. They were given by God to remind and to show that there was something coming in the future that would fix the problem of sin, that could deal with it in such a way that it never needed fixing again. That's the language of the shadow. And he's saying this to Jews who thought that sacrifices were the answer. He says, no, yes, they're from God, but they're not the answer. They're just anticipating the answer. Keep looking forward. And in fact, what he does now in verse 5 to 7 is pull out another astonishing observation, another part of the Old Testament that's saying the same thing, that there's something to come. Now look with me there at verse 5. Therefore, when Christ comes into the world, he said, sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Now what is that? It's a quote from Psalm 40, the psalm we had read. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you weren't pleased, Then I said, here I am, it's written about me in the scroll. I've come to do your will, my God. Now, verses 8 to 10 is where the author explains what Psalm 40 means. So what he says effectively is that Psalm 40 was a prophetic word of David, anticipating what the coming one would say. So David writes these words about a thousand years before Jesus, And God gives him to say words, Psalm 40, that would be on the lips of Jesus when he arrives. And what is it that Jesus will say? Well, verse 8 begins to explain it. Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, you were not pleased with them, though though they were often in accordance with the law. So, So here we see Psalm 40 is saying again that the sacrificial system was not the answer, couldn't achieve what it was said to set out to achieve, well, what... Many thought it was achieving. It it wasn't the answer. Verse 9, then he said, here I am, I've come to do your will. So this Jesus, upon whom these words are fulfilled, in whom these words are fulfilled, says, I've come to do something else. I've come to do your will. And the author says that in these, he sets aside the first, the law with its sacrificial system. It's now no longer applying. And by that will, we're being made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, join the dots here. Back in verse 5, the psalm tells us that this, this one who will speak these words in the future, after the psalm, will talk about not sacrifice and offering, but a body you prepared for me. What's being said there? In context, what's being said is that 
um, Psalm 40 was anticipating that God himself would enter the world with a body prepared. He would be incarnate. He would become flesh. That there's a body prepared for him to inhabit, to become human. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Here I am, the body, in the body, I've come to do your will. And what is your will? Verse 10. I've come to do the will that through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ, it might make right forever, once for all. There's the once for all language. Do you see how he's explaining to these Jewish people what God's purposes have been through history? It was always intended that Jesus would come in a body and that that body would be the sacrifice, which all of these others were just anticipating. He sees this also in verse 15, um, where he talks about the Holy Spirit testifying about this in the Old Testament. And he quotes verse 16, Psalm, um, Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, which is a de- desperately important passage in the Old Testament, which speaks of the old covenant not working, therefore coming of a new covenant, a covenant of forgiveness, where sin will no longer be remembered. So he keeps seeing in the Old Testament an anticipation of something greater and better. And that greater and better is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. It's an astonishing thing that what we have with the coming of Jesus is the coming of a priest that the priests anticipate, the coming of a temple that the temple anticipated, and the coming of an offering that the Old Testament offerings anticipated. Um, You see, (laughs) this offering by the priest of his body, look what it does, verse 10, it is once for all. It is done by the one sacrifice of this body. It has all been achieved. Look how verse 11 picks it up. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, the one whose body was prepared for him, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool for, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. You see this incredible thing that has arrived in our world. Jesus dies as the sacrifice in the place of sinners. Now remember, sinners could not come into the presence of God except that someone dies in their place. In the past it had been bulls and goats, but that was nothing big enough to pay as a substitute. The butt of a bull and a goat was not, was not of sufficient value to pay for the life of a human. They were inadequate. In fact, this um, funny way you think about these things, I saw a movie many years ago called Ruthless People. And I'm always interested, who saw Ruthless People? If you're over 80 or so, you might have seen it. But um, it's a very old movie. It's about this couple. This might relate to you, actually. Danny DeVito and uh, Bette Midler were the kind of the stars. But this couple, a young couple, were struggling to pay their mortgage. This is going to work for you guys, right? So struggling to pay their mortgage. 
and they hit upon the plan, how do, we, how do we cope with the rising interest rates? Well, they decided the answer was to kidnap the wife of a rich man and get a, uh, insist on a ransom price. There you are. Message from the sermon this morning. <laughs> how to deal with rising interest rates. Anyway, this, this young couple, you know, they're not hardened criminals, they're just struggling to make... So they, they kidnap Bette Midler, who's the wife, um, and lock her into a basement or something or other, and they send the ransom note off to her, her husband, uh, Danny DeVito, the rich man, and, um, and he opens up the ransom note. He's, you know, where's my wife? What's happened? Note comes, we've kidnapped her. He goes, oh... And then the ransom note says, we'll give her back if you pay, I can't remember the price, $10 million. And Danny DeVito goes, that's too much. <laughs> and so, so he writes, or communicates back and says, no, you know, I, I'm not paying that much for her. And so they begin to negotiate how much to pay. And so they drop the price. And he says, no, still too much. And they drop the price again. And Bette Midler ends up complaining, she's a great comedian, ends up complaining, I'm a bit like a Kmart special. Just the price for me drops, drops, drops. The point being is this, how much is your life worth to deal with the sin problem? What, what needs to be paid to deal with the sin problem that we have before a holy God? A goat? Maybe a goat you think is too much. A, 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 a hamster, a guinea pig, maybe a goldfish. Maybe you think it's not that big a deal. The way the Bible goes, it's the complete reverse. It says the problem is so vast and so great, the blood of bulls and goats endlessly offered is not sufficient. The only thing sufficient is the coming into the world of Christ to receive a body prepared for him by God himself, to become one with us, God-man, united in the one person, such that by his body offered, by the death of the Lord God himself in the person of Jesus, there is the price paid. And the point that this writer makes is, by that one death of that one man, the God-man, he once for all time, once and never again, once and done, pays. By one death, he offers a sacrifice for sin, that those who turn to Jesus for forgiveness are by that one offering made holy, forgiven, cleansed, paid for. You look there at chapter 9, verse 26. Um, Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but he's appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Verse 28, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sin of many. Once, once for all. It's repeated again and again through this book. Now, there's so much here. Let me just unpack some of it. How is it possible that the death of one man once pays for the sin of all? How is that possible? Because of who it is who died. Because of the value of who it was who hung on the cross. There's this quote that I've always, it's always stuck in my mind. It's by a theologian a man called T.C. Hammond. 
And um, he had this really wonderful quote. He said, the, the value of Christ's death is in the infinite worth of his person. The value of Christ's death is in the infinite worth of his person. Because of who it is who died, he only needed to do it once. Paid. The consequence of this is that he sat down. The Jesus who was the sacrifice was also the priest, fulfilling the priesthood. He was the temple within all of which he presents his own sacrifice. Now all of this is astonishing. And in a way, hopefully, that might help drive home the significance of it. Let me compare this to other religions for a moment. So the world is full of religions, but there's a number of big ones. You know, the classic, you know, Judaism, Islam, um, Buddhism, Hinduism, and so on. Let me just take you through these. Islam. Islam is interested in how it is that a human gets to be with God. How does it teach that you get to be with God by the five pillars by the declaration of the Shaddah, by prayer by alms giving giving of money by fasting and pilgrimage if you keep those five diligently if a person submits to Allah in the diligent service of these five things you might earn God's mercy on the final day you might You don't know. You have to just keep doing the five, hoping you've done enough to earn his mercy. Hinduism. Hinduism has a number of different paths. It's the way of works, the way of knowledge, the way of devotion. You can choose the path you want. And if you you work enough or enlightened enough or devoted enough, you will rise through the lives over time to arrive at the place of peace. Buddhism has a very similar thing. Karma gives a sense of Buddhism where, uh, you, you know, what I do in this life pays in the next and I rise or descend. But you see what's in common with all of these? What's, they're different, but what's common to all of them? The key to you getting to where we need to get to is you. It's you. It's what you do. It's whether you've done enough. It's how much work you've done. Now you compare that to what's being said here in the Bible. Who gives the offering in the Bible? I heard someone say it, but softly. Jesus. Jesus is always the answer in church. (laughs) Who gives the offering? God through his son, the Lord Jesus. He's the priest who offers it for you. You don't bring the offering. He does, he's the one who gives the offering. How many times does he do the offering? Once. And then he sits down. Why only once? Because the offering is of such value. It's infinite in worth. It's done. This sacrifice is unrepeatable. It cannot be added to. <laughs> in fact, to try and add to it is to diminish it. If you think you need to do something to sort of add to whether you get favoured by God or not, whether he'll bless you or not, I need to add. What are you saying about the death of Jesus? It wasn't enough. Yeah, he got at me some of the way, but I have to add. What are you saying about Jesus? It is finished. 
You say, well, let me drive this home. When you look at the religions of the world, they're saying different things. I say this often to us. They're saying different things. But all the religions of the world can be split into two categories. One group that say it's about what you do. One religion that says it's about what God has done in the death of his great sacrifice. The point is this. The Christian religion, the biblical Christian religion, is saying something entirely unique, entirely different, which is one of the reasons why it's so compellingly true. When humans are let run free to think up a religious system, they always come back to, it's about us. You you let a bunch of humans work out religion, it'll always descend down to, it's what you do, it's how you do it, it's what you must change. And church people do the same. You let church people loose from the Bible and not look at the Bible and just work out it themselves and they'll come up with rituals that you have to do. You have to get baptised to have your sins cleansed. Where is that in the Bible? You have to eat bread and juice to to actually uh, have the death of Jesus repeated in your life and apply. Where is that in the Bible? It's always about us and what we do. But when you go back to the Bible, it says this unique and profound truth that the death of Jesus happened once, it was of such value and worth, it's unrepeatable, you can't add to it, it's sufficient and complete. And when you look at the leaders of various religions, you know, we're used to putting all the religious leaders on the same kind of level, you've got Muhammad, you've got Krishna, you've got all these different um, gods and so on, we put them all on the same level, um, the the Buddha. Um, But what the Bible does you say that the claims of Jesus are so unique, so astonishingly different. He is the true priest, the sacrifice, God himself. There is nothing like it. Once for all, once done. Now, it does beg a question, who is this once for all sacrifice for? Who does this sacrifice apply to? this full and complete satisfaction for sin, this complete forgiveness where there's nothing more to pay? Well, it's for any and all who see the need. It's for any and all who see the need uh, of forgiveness, who see the seriousness of sin. It's for any and all who throw themselves on the mercy of God. And it's for any and all who embrace Jesus as not only Saviour, but Lord. You look with me there at verse 14. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. What's that saying? What it's saying is that this sacrifice, this once for all sacrifice, applies to a certain group of people. It applies to those people who have given themselves back to God to be renovated by God throughout their whole life. Who have given themselves back to Jesus as Lord. This doesn't just apply to anyone who says, yeah, I'll have that. Ticket to heaven, great. No, it applies to those who say, I want to come back to God, come back under God. I want to come back to God to have my whole life shaped to be like Him more and more, to live like Him. Those people receive the merits of this sacrifice. A sacrifice that was once for all, that cleanses, purifies, deals with sin completely. 
Now, I'm not suggesting that you wanting to be renovated is a work that you have to do, but it's evidence that you actually understand what God's salvation is about. He saves you to be transformed and changed by a forgiveness that's once for all. Now, what do we do with this? Well, if you're here amongst us this morning and you don't know this forgiveness, you know that you're not right with God, can can I urge you to know that today you can receive this forgiveness in a moment. Come to the Lord God and speak to Him. Sorry, thank you, please. Three things. Sorry for the way I've treated you. Thank you for the once-for-all death of Jesus. Please help me now live under your Lordship. You can leave this morning completely forgiven, purified, cleansed, slate wiped clean. That would be a great thing to do today, wouldn't it? For those of you who have embraced the truth of all of this already, know that this satisfaction for sin, this sacrifice of sin cannot be repeated. It doesn't need to be repeated. There's nothing that you can add to it. There's nothing in your life that can make you more worthy of it. There's nothing you can do that can make God more accepting of you than what he has done in Jesus. If you are looking to Jesus, his death was enough, more than enough, infinitely valuable. There's no sin too great. There's no shame too crushing, no hole that you're in too deep. Our task is to learn to live in light of this incredible truth. All has been paid for. You are free. Free to now be renovated into the image of Christ. There's nothing more to add, nothing more to do. Continue to trust Him and Him alone. You know, there's a beautiful verse that um, is similar to the song we're about to sing. We're about to sing a beautiful song. Christianity is a singing religion because there's so much to give thanks for. But listen to these words. Not the labours of my hands can fulfil the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. You must save and you alone. And the beautiful declaration is that God has. He has saved in the once for all death of the infinitely worthwhile Son of God, who has sat down, who has finished his work, come to him and find all that we need in him. Let me pray. I'm going to pray for those of you who may want to make a decision to follow Jesus this morning and pray for the rest of us. Heavenly Father, I would ask for those amongst us who are yet to put their faith in Jesus, that you might stir them to come to you and say, say, I'm sorry, thank you, please. Bring them to you today to say, sorry for sin. Thank you for Jesus. Please help me live under his lordship. Please let that happen amongst us today. For those of us who do know Jesus, we ask please that you might help us appreciate the wonder and greatness and glory of what you have done for us in Christ. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.